Come on in, bring it in, bring it in, grab a seat. Uh, this morning, you guys may not know this, again, we just did a, a fundraiser for our broader ministries connected to our family of churches. Uh, we are part of a family of churches. There's five in Southern California now, uh, another one somewhere else in the country, and then um, another one in Africa, and then another one that's about to pop in India. Spoiler, yeah, I was excited about it, I don't know. And then, uh, yeah, Maria will be living in about a month. Um, but today we have uh, someone with us from Restored South Bay. Jackie and I are from South San Diego, South Bay. Uh, we love it down there. And um, we have a church down there that's led by Danny Monique Kimlot, uh, as well as Alex Brittany Cottrell, and uh, the guys preaching today, Eric Davis and his wife, Leanna. Uh, they are on the eldership team down there. And uh, it's one thing to, for me to introduce a, somebody who's coming in to preach and minister. Uh, it's another thing to have their wife do it. They just have better, just better spice. So I asked Leanna, Leanna Davis, to come on up and intro her man, Eric. Give it up for Leanna. Hey, everyone. Okay, so y'all must know I am very partial to this man. And there is so much to say, so much to I love about him as like a family man and a, a husband and a father. But I wanted to kind of speak on like his role in the church and really just how much he loves the church. Um, he spent so much of his time in the day just praying for the church, crying over people in the church, meeting with people in the church, going through some really difficult times, and even living out through those, like, really joyous times, too. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to introduce him as, like, this sweet man who loves God, loves Jesus, loves the word, um, and God's really gifted him in, like, in this, and I pray, um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and pray for him now. Um, Father, I thank you so much for, um, how much you love Eric and how much uh, you are here with him right now. And I pray that the words you've given him today, that he's able to really boldly share to um, the rest of the church. God, we love you. And I pray for open hearts and open minds and just Holy Spirit, would you counsel us and um, point things out to us that you'd like us to focus on in this message. I pray this all in your name. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much. Amen. All right, that was really sweet. I wasn't expecting that, so thank you. All right, um, man, yeah, hello everyone. Uh, like Leanna and Andy share, my name is Eric. I'm one of the elders at Restore South Bay, which is about 10 minutes south from here, not too far. Um, and I just wanna first start, I'll just share like what a privilege it is for me to stand here and just like be with you all this Sunday. Um, whenever I think about Uptown, my heart does swell with gratitude to the Lord for this church. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, a little fun fact about me is I actually went to the same high school as Andy and Jackie at uh, Chula Vista High School. Um, Spartans are up in this house today. I mean, that's, <laughs> we're just, there's something in the water down there, I don't know. Um, but not only that, but I actually had the uh, honor of having the same biology class uh, as Andy. Um, I was in the ninth grade, and he was a senior at the time, so we, we weren't, <laughs> stay with me, I'm not throwing shade, I promise you, stay with me. Um, the reason why I say that is because we weren't close at all, right, like, we weren't close. Um, but I remember being at a family of churches retreat, like, later on, I'm fast forwarding, and telling him, I'm like, hey, dude, we, we actually went to the same high school, and we had Mr. Marino's biology class together. And uh, he looked at me, and he was like, oh, really? Wow. Was, and then he asked me a question. He's like, what was your experience of me? 
And I remember telling him, I was like, you know what, dude? I just remember, like, honestly, you being absent a lot and <laughs> not really having much of a presence in class. And yet, stay with me, and yet, when I look back to that high school memory in that biology class, I become so grateful to our God for how transformative he is. Because every time I think back to that, I imagine God telling me, hey, Eric, one day, I'm actually going to use this seemingly absent senior and his obedience to me to show you how present I am and want to be in your life. One day, I'm going to use the generosity of strangers known as Restored Uptown to plant a church called Restore South Bay. And it's there where I'm going to provide you a community. And in that community, I'm going to redefine what family actually means and provide you an only child with brothers and sister, something you've always longed for. One day you're gonna be really worrying about something, going from a family of four to a family of five. You're gonna be anxious and just looking for help, asking me for help. And one day, I'm gonna answer your prayers through a conversation with that same old classmate from Mr. Marino's biology class. And I'm gonna speak to you so intimately in that. Fam, I can go on and on about how God has used the ripples of restored uptown to impact my walk with Christ, to impact my walk, my, my marriage with Leanna, to impact the way that I see my children, not as mine own first, but God's first. I can go on and on about how grateful these memories make me. And so all that to say, when I, when I think about restored uptown, my heart does really swell with gratitude. And I really mean when I say, man, it is a privilege to be here with you all this Sunday. Today, we're going to be continuing our series uh, about that life, which is based on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's most famous preach. And whenever I think about this sermon, I'm really baffled because no matter how many books are written about it or number of theses are conducted or how many sermons are preached on it or how many Bible studies or podcasts revolve around this sermon, it still remains like an endless mine of treasure that the Lord uses to generously teach us about him and also how to follow him, even 2,000 years later. And just last week, Andy walked us through chronic worrying and just the importance of remembering who God is in our relationship with him, meaning remembering who we are and whose we are, and that it's when we do that that we experience a peace and a freedom from worrying about things outside of our control because we're remembering the one who has complete control, that is Christ. And that's exactly why this series is called About That Life because week in and week out, we're learning about the life that Jesus wants for his followers. Jesus is saying, hey, I want something different for those who follow me. I want my followers to listen how I want them to live. I want my followers to see themselves how I see them, cherished and delighted in. I want my followers to treat strangers with generosity, the same generosity that I show them. I want my followers to be different. And not only for others, but for themselves too because that's the type of life I'm all about. And so today we're gonna be uh, continuing the same series and talking about a topic that is very relevant to our culture today. 
we're going to be talking about judging others. And we live in a time where that word judging, where for many, the very idea of just being in disagreement with another's belief could actually cost you something. It could cost you a friendship, maybe your job, maybe safety in some circles, or slander, or being canceled in some shape or form. And yet, even in this topic, Jesus wants something different for his followers. He wants his followers to judge in a way that looks like Jesus, not the world. And so with that being said, we're going to be looking at two different parts in our passage today. The first part, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to judge? And two, how does Jesus want us to judge? Um, before we get into it, let's, let's go ahead and pray. God, I, um, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Um, I thank you for the ways that you've used Restored Uptown, and I don't think it's a coincidence that even today with Give Love and how you're still using your children to reach more people, Lord, in whatever way or shape or form, and so I pray for more obedience in that. And God, I pray that, um, Holy Spirit, would you calm our minds as we go through your passage, as we hear from you? Would you help us to be present? Would you help us to be grounded, to receive what you have for us this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be reading um, from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus move to a different idea in his sermon compared to chapter 6, the previous chapter. Um, in the previous chapter, we saw Jesus primarily speaking about themes connected to our inner spiritual life where he's talking about how our attitudes should be in the way that we give, in the way that we pray, our hearts behind fasting, or how we interact with materialism and our worrying over material things. And now as we jump into chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus transition into a different theme related to how we should treat and think about others. Now he wants his followers to do it differently. So that being said, let's read from chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how could you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eyes. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. As I was uh, preparing for this talk, I came across this article talking about the most popular and the most misused verses in the Bible. And uh, sitting right at the top of this list was the passage that we just read, Matthew 7.1. And it's interesting because whether you're a Christian or not, uh, most likely you have heard this verse being used before. Whether it was used by someone else or even towards you or maybe you've used it yourself. And even if it wasn't like the entire passage verbatim, 
you've probably heard at least like a, a version of it where someone's saying, hey, don't judge me. Or this is a judge-free space. Or as the famous philosopher by the name of P Tupac said, only God could judge me, nobody else. But I also find it interesting because whenever I hear this verse being used by someone, it's always like the King James translation being quoted. And for those who don't know, King James Version, it's like an old school English 1600s version of the Bible. And when I hear this verse, it just has like more oomph behind it. Like, judge not, lest ye be judged. Which in and of itself just sounds like a mic drop moment. Even I'm, I'm too scared to speak after that. And I think one of the main reasons why this verse is so misunderstood and misused is because it's really easy to read a verse and to try to interpret it by relying on our like current cultural moments understanding of what it's saying. Rather than trying to see what the original author's intent was or the cultural context that's surrounding it or even trying to understand the audience that it was spoken to it's a lot easier to just rely on our culture's view or even our own preconceived ideas. And when we allow those lenses to filter our reading and understanding of a set of verses or a topic like this, instead of seeing the original intent, it results in them being misused and misunderstood. You see, if we were to, to rely on culture's understanding of what it means to judge someone, uh, the word alone would be like a complete trigger and turnoff for many. Because culture is basically saying that if your beliefs disagree with someone else's, especially when your beliefs go against what mainstream culture deems right or wrong belief, then how dare you? That's intolerant, bigoted, and judgmental of you. Not only that, but I don't want anything to do with you because your beliefs are contrary to mine. There's no way I'm going to be affiliated with you or whatever company that doesn't align with my own beliefs. There's no way I'm going to support that. I recently watched a documentary on HBO Max called uh, 15 Minutes of Shame. Anybody see that? Cool. I'll share it. <laughs> uh, the entire documentary is based on like several different people's perspectives whose entire lives have been turned upside down because they're judged by their like worst moments and that impacts and the impacts that that has had on their lives they walk through that whether they meant harm or not and one of the examples that stuck with me was this utility worker um, he had just gotten off of work he's driving home in his company truck and he stops at a light about to make a left and it's a red and so his hand is outside of his window and he's like fidgeting and he happened to stop by a Black Lives uh, Matter march. And as he was at the lights, he was fidgeting with his hand. And someone noticed, caught notice of it. Like, what is, what's going on here? And they perceived his fidgeting as um, like a racial gesture directed towards them. And it was reposted on Twitter, and it went viral. And the man was terminated from his job, like, almost immediately. Um, despite the amount of years and hard work it took for him to land that career is more than a job. And in a moment, it was all over. And that man just explains his perspective. He's just like, man, I was just so unaware that that was even a gesture or a thing. To me, I'm just fidgeting like I normally do. Um, but he was judged and shamed incorrectly for it. 
And I think this is a glimpse as to where our culture is currently at. That if someone doesn't align with my own beliefs, or even my perception of them is not aligning with my own beliefs, then I want nothing to do with them. And I want to make sure nobody else does either. Now, I do want to say that it's important to have a set of beliefs and to live in congruence with them. But the question becomes, who or what are we basing our set of beliefs on? You see, as followers of Christ, we know and believe that God is the one who establishes what is right and what is wrong. And he never wants his followers to allow culture to dictate how they live, but rather how he tells us to. Not only that, but we even see Jesus, how he lives this out, how he's congruent with his own set of beliefs. And you know what's interesting when we look at Jesus's life? is how he treated people who disagreed with him. You never see him canceling people or saying, I don't want anything to do with you, but doing the exact opposite, praying for his enemies, befriending the marginalized, dying for those who despised him, canceling not us, but our debts by paying for him themselves on the cross. And so Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is saying, hey, I want my followers to look differently than what culture says to look like. I want my followers to judge in a way that is congruent with how I tell them to do so. Because when that happens, there's a sweet fragrance that's emitted, a fragrance of grace. And so taking a step back, how does Jesus want us followers to do that? Let's reread verses 1 through 2 again. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. The word judge here uh, comes from the Greek word krino. And krino actually has a number of different nuances and meanings depending on its context. Uh, for instance, there's five, five different ones. For instance, uh, crino can mean discernment or evaluation. And we see this in Luke 7, verse 43. Um, the second crino we also see is like it means some kind of like judicial litigation, like judges in a classroom or courtroom, sorry. <laughs> we see this in Matthew 5, verse 40. We also see crino can also mean to like bestow a reward. Like the judge determined a certain amount to be rewarded. And this is in Matthew 19:28. Number four, we see crino can also mean the pronouncement of guilt, declaring the guilt of someone else. We see this in John 7:51. And lastly, crino can mean like the absolute determination of someone's fate, just completely writing them off. And we see this in Matthew 5:22. And so the question is like, which crino is being talked here? And many theologians agree that the type of judge or crino that's being used in this passage are the last two. Where Jesus is saying, hey, don't, don't judge or crino someone in a way where you are determining their fate and declaring their guilt to God. Just completely writing them off. Don't do that. And so Jesus is saying, not to do this type of judging, that must mean there are certain types that we should do. 
I love how uh, James Brian Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, he makes a case. Uh, the difference between assessing, which is positive, and judging, which is negative. And I found this really helpful. This is what he says in his book. He says, assessing others' behavior is a necessary part of life. Good parents pay attention to their children's behavior and are responsible for correcting it when necessary. For those who don't know, I play the violin, and I used to teach private violin lessons throughout college and a couple years after. Um, so about like eight years I used to teach. And whenever I received like a new student, I always would assign a violin book that we would work through together. And in it, we would learn how to read music together. We would learn how to have like good violin posture, which is like super important. How to use different types of bowing techniques. Um, and also we would choose like three pieces from the book um, because we'd have like an end of the year performance that our studio would throw. And so as the violin teacher, it was my job to assess and evaluate how well my students were progressing or not. And it was through my assessment that I would tailor our lessons to better help suit my students' needs at where they were at in order to help them to grow, in order to help them improve. And that's exactly what James Brian Smith is getting at. Assessing others' behavior is a good and necessary part of life. Like, there's, there's wisdom in this type of crino. Even Jesus echoes this in our same chapter 7, but in verse 15, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, by saying, you know how you tell a good tree from a bad one? You tell by the fruit they produce. Essentially saying, you can tell how people are by the way they live, by the, way, by the choices they make, the way they respond in conflict, the way they speak about others when they're not around, the way they spend their money, the way they prioritize their life. And you can learn this by assessing the way they live. We see an example of this even further by King Solomon, who is considered like the wisest dude besides Jesus. And he makes such a big deal in Proverbs about choosing our friends wisely because their, their influence has such a great impact on our lives, whether positively or negatively. And so Solomon is saying, hey, assess and evaluate those who are closest to you. Choosing your friends wisely is an example of assessment and assessing their behavior because it's necessary and good. And maybe for those who may be uh, <clears throat> dating, like assessing the values of the person you're going out on dates with, like that's necessary and good too. Does he or she live in a way that values Jesus? Not just verbally, but in how they respond to people who disagree with them, how they respond in conflict. And so we just walked really quickly through the idea that assessing someone's behavior is necessary part of life and a good thing to do. It's a positive one. And so the next question becomes, what type of judging is unnecessary and not a good thing to do? And what makes it turn into a negative thing? According to Smith, uh, he contrasts assessing versus judging by saying the following. Judging is making a negative evaluation of others 
without standing in solidarity with them. When we judge others, we are criticizing them, but not as a caring friend who wants to help. After we critically assess their behavior or character, we walk away. There's a difference here between being critiqued or receiving constructive criticism and being judged. The difference has everything to do with what's going on in our hearts in those moments. When we make those critiques, when we make those assessments, when we're just telling someone the truth, are we trying to move closer to that person in order to help them grow and improve? Are we trying to close the distance between them and us, or maybe them and God, by being willing to walk alongside them in their shortcomings? Or are we condemning them, which is just increasing the distance between us and our targets, having no intention to actually joining them in their journey and being willing to meet them where they're at and walk alongside them? The difference has everything to do with our hearts in those moments, whether we're trying to stand in solidarity with others or walk away from them. You see, cor correcting someone can be a gift from God, but judging others never is because it's condemning. And this is why Jesus gives a warning to anyone who judges in this way in verse two. Let's reread that. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Uh, it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying and not saying here. Notice that this verse isn't referencing God at all. It's talking about others. And so Jesus is saying, for anyone who is quick to criticize and condemn others, and not attempting to stand in solidarity with them, be prepared to receive the same exact treatment from others. Because absolutely nobody enjoys being condemned and judged, and they will let you know. Now, I admit, that sounds like really obvious, right? Like if I had a raise of hands, who likes being condemned or judged? Pretty sure nobody would raise their hands, right? Um, but I think it's important to put language as to why that is. Because when we have language tied to our understanding of the why, I think that helps us grow. Um, in The Good and Beautiful Life, the author comes up with four simple reasons why judging or condemning more often than not fails to actually lead a person to change. And I just found this language really helpful to understand the why. The first reason uh, Smith talks about is because uh, judging or condemning, it doesn't flow from a heart of love. The person judging doesn't demonstrate love towards the other when they are condemning them. They instantly know that they are not being loved. When we throw harsh words or accusatory language, heaping ridicule and bringing back old wounds and history against someone, they know they haven't been loved. Smith says the second reason why judging doesn't work, even if we are right in our assessment, is that it takes a shortcut that bypasses a necessary step. When someone is in error, the first step towards change 
is for the person to admit or recognize that there is a problem. And when we judge others, we are forcing them to recognize their errors. The author does mention that in cases of interventions, this could work well. But in most interactions, this is not received well. Those being judged feel attacked and cause a natural defensive reaction and maybe even striking back. The third reason why judgment doesn't work is that it tears down but fails to build up. Judgment is deconstruction without reconstruction. The people we are judging live as they do for many reasons and are often at the mercy of many narratives or messages. And when we condemn them, we're failing to recognize how difficult change is. Change requires adopting new narratives, new messages, spiritual disciplines, community, patience, the help of God. The process of change is lengthy and challenging and will usually involve the help of others that builds up. Lastly, the author says that the reason why our judgment isn't helpful is because it may be wrong. Our knowledge of another person's plight is limited. We don't know how they feel, what has happened to them in the past, or maybe what struggles they face in the present. And just like the utility worker I mentioned earlier, he was condemned incorrectly based off, based off one perceived moment. So we just walk through the difference between assessing, which is good and necessary, versus judging, which is like negative and unnecessary. And the four reasons as to why judging most often fails to lead people to change. And so the next question is, what, what does Jesus want for his followers instead? Let's look at verses three through five. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye, hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eyes. Um, this is how I know Jesus was a crack up in his day. Meaning he has like a strong sense of humor. Because if you just like try to just like close your eyes and try to picture what he's describing here, right? Someone with a beam of wood in their eye, which by the way, a beam is like a structural element that weighs a lot, supports a lot of weight, 10 feet long. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not a joking, like it's huge, right? And trying to help someone with a splinter situation, the whole thing is just absurd, right? And I'm sure the crowd at the moment was probably laughing at this story, at least giggling, like Jesus is pulling out the carpenter jokes. Man. Until recently, um, I used to view like the splinter or the beam of wood in this passage as like sin in our lives. Where Jesus is saying, hey, who are you to judge? You're way more sinful than the other person you're judging. But if you like reread verse five, where Jesus says to like take the beam of wood out of our own eye, 
and then we'll clearly take the splinter out of our brothers? There's no way that that would really make sense. That Jesus would teach us like, hey, somehow if you're able to get rid of the sin in your own lives, then you can go and judge others appropriately. Now you're qualified. That goes against everything that Jesus teaches. And so instead he's saying, hey, the log is not our sinfulness, but the act of judging. Like judging others is impossible. It makes it impossible to help them. Even if our intentions are good, the method of judging is not the way to help someone with a problem because it blinds us from seeing a better way. I want us to remember the cultural context during this time. Remember, Jesus is speaking during a time where the celebrities, the, the social elites, the, the ones with tremendous influence culturally, religiously, socially, the OG influencers back in the day were religious leaders. And more often than not, Jesus did not hold back in calling out their hypocrisy because they were more concerned about their outward appearance than what was going on in their hearts. They were more concerned with how people perceived how much they were giving financially. They're more concerned about how they sounded when they prayed out loud with fancy words. They're more concerned with how many people recognize when they were fasting and when they weren't. They cared more about themselves than what God cared about. And so Jesus, knowing this is the culture of his time, of his time, is saying to a crowd of people on this mountain, I want something different for you all. I want my, my followers not to be hypocritical. I want my followers to be concerned with their hearts inwardly as much as their actions outwardly. I want my followers to be mindful of others as much as they are mindful of themselves, if not more. I want my followers to hear my words and live according to them instead of what these OG influencers are saying. I want my followers to treat people who disagree with them with kindness because that's what leads people to change. It's my kindness. I want my followers to serve one another in humility because that's the kind of leadership I desire. I want my followers to engage in conflict in ways that doesn't tear people down, but helps them grow healthily. I don't want my followers to live a judgmental life. I want them to live a gracious life. I used to think that the word grace only meant undeserved uh, favor or unmerited favor, getting something that I don't deserve. I thought grace was only like a characteristic trait of God. But as I was preparing for this and reading just through some of the language that Paul uses in the New Testament about grace, I'm seeing that that's not all there is to it. Listen to how Paul describes grace in these three passages. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Paul says, And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. We see Paul describing grace as like a power or influence that helps us to obey God. He continues this thought in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which says this. Jesus says to Paul, my grace 
is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And lastly, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15.10, which says this. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder, that was the effect of grace, than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. John Piper describes grace as not only a disposition or a characteristic trait of God, but also as an influence or a force or a power or an act of God that works in us to change the way we live through the help of the Holy Spirit. And I really love seeing grace this way also because it's essentially saying that I don't have to muster it up on my own not being judgmental towards others. I don't have to rely on quick fixes of what not to do's because the truth is that genuine change is much more difficult than quick fixes. It's not only my behavior that needs to change, but it's also my heart that's driving it. And the reality is that I need help with this. And Paul is saying that's exactly where God's grace comes in a power to help you change, a power that's only found in and through Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. And this gives me a lot of hope because whenever I think about people who have mislabeled me, when I think about people who called me certain names because of my skin color or gave me certain looks in certain neighborhoods or being questioned, do I even know how to play the violin because of the way I look? The last thing I want to do is pray for them. The last thing I want to do is bless them. The last thing I want to do is stand in solidarity with them. The last thing I want to do is close the distance between us. Everything in me wants to widen the chasm that's between us. Everything in me wants to condemn not just their actions. I want to condemn them. And it's here that I'm being reminded that Jesus, this is a sore and tender spot for me. And I really need your help. I really need your grace to live a gracious life. This is too hard for me to do on my own. And I know that you're calling me to live this way, not just for the benefit of others, but also for my benefit. Like you want to free me from the grip that this has on my heart. And that's going to take time. So I want to ask, what might, that, what might that look for you? Who might God be revealing that you need help? You need his grace to live more gracious towards. Maybe God is placing a person Maybe it's a relative, a coworker. Maybe it's a GC member on your heart. And I just want to encourage you to pray to God. God, how do you want me to live this out? And would you help me to live this out? Maybe for some, you're coming up blank. Maybe you're unaware of who you're quick to judge. 
And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to start with prayer and ask God, God, where do I need help with in this? Would you help reveal how you want me to live differently towards what I'm currently doing? Now, I do want to take a moment to speak to a certain like group of people I think God may be highlighting. Because I think there are folks in this room who genuinely might not be quick to judge or condemn others, but you're really quick to condemn or judge yourself. And maybe you've picked up a, a, a negative message along the way, whether in your childhood or adulthood. Maybe it was from a parent or a teacher or someone you thought was a friend. Maybe it was a spouse where you were called something or shamed for a mistake that you made. Or maybe even something was done to you. And that negative message has impacted the way you see yourself. Negatively impacting the way you treat yourself. Where your first train of thought is to just condemn. Seeing yourself as a perpetual problem or always at fault. Always fill in the blank. Or you'll never fill in the blank. And that lens continues to plague the way you see yourself and the way that you live. And friend, if that is you, I just want you to know that when Jesus thinks about you, the only thing he is quick to is his delight in you. When he thinks of his child, you, he's overwhelmed with joy. He cherishes the thought of you. And his desire that you would, is that you would see yourself the way he sees you which is the way you are supposed to and the way he wants to help you to do. And no matter how you feel towards yourself, that will never remove the way God feels and sees you. I just want to remind you that his grace is sufficient enough, it's powerful enough to save you even from the worst kinds of self-condemnation. Ben, you can uh, come on up. At the end of our passage, uh, Jesus talks about not throwing pearls. No, you're good. Sorry. I need to pronounce it better. At the end of our passage, Jesus talks about not throwing pearls before pigs and dogs in verse 6. And one interpretation that I, I really found impactful was this parallel. And it was the idea of just, just like how pigs and dogs are unable to digest pearls, their digestive system isn't able to handle it. In the same way, we as people are unable to digest condemnation. And this is why Jesus came to save you and I from it. John 3.16 through verse 17 says this, For God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus, the rightful judge, the one who knows every one of our sinful actions, who is able to determine our fate eternally, 
Jesus, the one who we are undeserving of receiving help from, chose to close the relational distance between you and I and from God by coming down to earth, not to condemn it, but to save us through him. And in the same manner, we are to live similarly towards others. And this will be difficult, but we'll be freeing for others and ultimately ourselves. And so let's join his invitation in living this out, a life that is gracious towards others and ourselves. Thank you so much. Uh, we're obviously here to worship Jesus, but we do want to honor each other. So give it up for Eric. Um, you may not know this, uh, Eric uh, is a huge introvert. Uh, on top of that, uh, he's a full-time engineer. He is not paid to pastor. He pastors as a, as a um, volunteer elder uh, at their local church. And so he did this t- to bless us and serve us uh, in his own time, you know. Uh, and so I just want to say, um, you know, in addition to the fact that public speaking is like the number one fear <laughs> Uh, in the world, never mind for, for an introvert and an engineer and all that stuff. Um, this guy's stepping out of, not that engineers can't public speak, but, but, but he's stepping, <laughs> I'm saying he's not full-time pastor, he, like this is all he spends his time on. Um, in addition to that, he's an introvert. In addition, this isn't his local church. And in addition to that, um, uh, he, he, he gave us this. So I just want to say thank you so much for serving us sacrificially, uh, for gracing us with your presence, bro. Um, so one of the things Eric talked about was the difference between judging as assessing something and condemning someone. So there's assessing someone's actions, right? Kind of like what a, 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 a good judge would do, assessing uh, what did someone do, why did they do it, is it okay, is it not okay? Um, and then like just condemning someone and kind of throwing away the key or, or, or punishing them. And um, one of the things that's unique about Jesus is no one assesses with clearer eyes and greater wisdom than Jesus. He sees it all. He sees your heart. Not just the good stuff. You, he sees the good stuff you do for the wrong reasons. He sees the, um, the pride and the lust and the greed and even this talk, the judgments, like the anger, the disdain we have for people. That's so ugly if we were to like bring it out into the light. He sees it all his assessment is clear and then rather than condemn us he takes condemnation upon himself on the cross and in the resurrection and so communion is a time where we remember he sees us clearly he knows what we deserve and he's condemned in our place and in addition to that he comes alongside us and stands in solidarity and says i'm going to step by step in your sanctification journey, help you become the person you were created to be. He doesn't judge us to beat us up. He judges us to set us free. He doesn't point things out that he's not prepared to help us with. Grace is help. Um, And so right now I'm going to go ahead and pray and we remember this Jesus who sees us clearly and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus, thank you that you, um, I forget, Who's, uh, it's, it's kind of a cheesy worship lyric, but it's so true. It's the truest thing I've ever heard. It's you see the depths of our heart and you love us the same. Like you, kn- you know the bad parts of who we are. You know our wounds, our weakness, our wickedness. You know every part of the way, you know every way that the fall has impacted who we are. And the fact that we need salvation, the fact that we need forgiveness, the fact that we need healing, the fact that we need reconciliation to God. 
you saw us clearly apart from God, alone with no hope, Ephesians says. And you, you came to us and you made a way for us to get well, to get holy. Jesus, you said the doctor doesn't come for the healthy, but for the sick, and I have come for the sick. Again, you diagnosed us clearly. You assessed our condition. You said, and I'm here to help. I'm here to fix everything that's broken about you. And the cross is the beginning of that. The cross where you receive the condemnation that we deserved, that we might res- receive the acceptance we don't deserve. The cross where the only one whose assessment, the only one who could be assessed as perfect and pure and fully holy as treated as though he was the opposite of those things, as if he was guilty. We're so grateful that that happened. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, by your spirit, would you continue to come alongside us on the side of the cross, teaching us, helping us, not condemning us, but inviting us into freedom where sin still reigns where it shouldn't in our lives and our hearts. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen.